I'm, I'm very happy to uh, introduce to the colloquium my friend and colleague Chris Wally, uh, professor of anthropology here at MIT and a faculty member um, of CMS's Open Documentary Lab. Uh, Chris, Chris is part of a very important and still ongoing shift in the humanities and social sciences. Her work individually and in collaboration with her partner Chris Babel is work that forces the traditionalists within social sciences and humanities fields to take media production seriously. Um, to understand that documentary film and digital media production can in fact be forms of scholarship in and of themselves, rather than less rigorous side projects or extras or add-ons to traditional written scholarship. As you will see, Chris's work also takes very seriously the idea of producing scholarly and media work with, alongside, and for communities that have traditionally been cast simply as objects of study rather than subjects of history. Chris received a PhD in anthropology from New York University in 1999, where she was part of the anthropology department's pathbreaking program in culture and media, um, which is celebrating its 30th year this year, uh, founded by Fig Ginsburg. Her first book, Chris's first book, Rough Waters, Nature and Development in an East African Marine Park, from Princeton University Press in 2004, was based on field research exploring environmental conflict in rural Tanzania. Uh, Chris Wally and, and Chris Babel are also the co-creators and co-instructors of the documentary film production and theory class DB Lab, uh, documenting science through video, video and new media. She will be speaking today about her current transmedia project, Exit 2. Thank you. Hi, great, thank you so much. It's, um, it's a great to come and talk to the CMS folks and to be part of the ongoing conversations for a long time with William and Vivek and others, and so it's uh, great to be here. So thank you. Thank you for having me come over. So this talk, excuse me, um, so this um, talk is entitled The Exit Zero Project, a Transmedia Exploration, sorry, misspelled, <laughs> a family and class in post-industrial Chicago. Um, and I'm going to be speaking about, um, so it's a project that I've been engaged in for a, numbers of, a number of years, a research project. I mean, it uses multi-generational family storytelling to explore the aftermath of deindustrialization or the loss of heavy industry jobs um, in economic, social, and environmental terms in the former steel mill region of southeast Chicago. Um, but more broadly, it's about the impact that deindustrialization has had on expanding class inequalities in the United States and how Americans talk and fail to talk about social class. So the Exit Zero Project is what some might refer to as a transmedia or a multi-platform project, which in this case includes a book, um, a documentary film, and a, also a planned interactive website that that's very much in process. Um, and even though sort of on a very different topic, sort of BFEC and this project, BFEC's work and this project has, ha has many parallels as well, so it's been great to be in um, conversation with the work that he's been doing um, on Bengali Harlem. Har Har so, excuse me, there we go. So the, the book, um, I ended up writing the book, the documentary film, as, as Vivek mentioned, is a collaboration with my husband, Chris Babel, who is a filmmaker. 
Um, he directed the film. I was the anthropologist and the producer for it. And we're also working collaboratively on this interactive documentary website um, in conjunction with the Southeast Chicago Historical Museum. And the inspiration for that website actually came out of the Open Doc Lab. So thank you to these folks here um, for that. Um, so transmedia is a term popularized in part by media scholar Henry Jenkins, formerly of CMS. Um, it was originally used for fictional storytelling in which the storytelling unfolded across multiple forms of media in the entertainment industry. Um, and there's been some debate about this term. I'll just say that the way that I'm using it here is to, in this instance to refer to non-fictional work that crosses media in ways that transform the nature of the work itself, as well as how audiences in, engage with it. And what I like about this term is this is suggestion that it's not simply the same story told in multiple media, so it's not just sort of multimedia, but it's actually different components of a larger story that, story that each media form has something unique to contribute in terms of the, the telling of the overall story itself. So in this talk, I want to give a quick overview of the Exit Zero project. And then I'm going to suggest some of the ways this project has responded to discussions within my home field of anthropology, and also what might be of interest then from those discussions in anthropology for all of you in CMS. And I'd like to conclude by suggesting some of the ways that we've found that doing transmedia work can be helpful in, in addressing the, the central intellectual concern of the project, which is understanding growing inequality within the United States. So, okay. So again, as I mentioned, I'm a cultural anthropologist. I'm originally from Southeast Chicago, the area that this work is about. For those of you who aren't from, how many of you are Chicago familiar folks, some, some people? Um, so the area that we're talking about here is this area all the way down to the bottom. So you have the Indiana border right here. This area, Southeast Chicago, is down along here. And this is part of the Calumet region, which extended all the way from here down over towards Gary, Indiana. This was a whole steel mill belt from the late 19th century all the way into um, that part of Indiana. Um, so Southeast Chicago was built in response to the steel industry. Since the late 19th century, it attracted generations of immigrants, both immigrants and migrants, to work in the steel mills. Um, at one time, it was heavily white ethnic, largely people of Eastern European um, extraction. Um, it, there's also been a large Mexican-American population since the 1920s, and increase in more recent years, the Mexican-American population is the largest group in Southeast Chicago. And there's also a growing number of African-Americans who've been in the area. So here's a couple more shots of the mills. My family on both my father's and my mother's side lived in the region for multiple generations. My father was a steel worker, my grandfather, my great-grandfather. It was one of those kind of old industrial communities where sort of that's kind of the way it worked. Um, when I was 14, um, my father, the, the, the mill where my father worked closed. His was the first steel mill to close in the region. Over the next two decades, all the steel mills in southeast Chicago um, would close. Um, a couple on the Indiana side of the border kept working but barely. So basically, out of 120,000 steel workers, at one point, there's somewhere between 10 and 15,000 workers left in this whole belt. Um, <clears throat> so in short, deindustrialization has had an enormous impact on the entire Calumet region, as well as my family personally. Um, and my interest in this topic came out of this personal experience. Now, so one of the central questions within anthropology's discipline has for many decades been the question of how do we represent the people who are the subjects of our ethnographies. The intensity of this concern came out of the fact that anthropology emerged in the late 19th century during the period of widespread colonialism. Um, and so it was the discipline that focused on what used to be thought of at the time as quote unquote primitive peoples in the non-Western part of the, the world 
So in the post-colonial period, beginning in the 1960s, as anthropology really tried to decolonize itself, questions of representation and how we represent others became increasingly central um, questions for, for anthropologists. And since that time, anthropologists have been interested in textual and other kinds of experimentation, using different writing styles, um, a focus on reflexivity, or reflecting back on our own position as researchers. And most recently, there's been a growing interest in what some might think um, refer to as autoethnographic work, or turning the analytical lens on ourself or one's home community, however defined. And so initially, I had planned to research questions around deindustrialization in a pretty academic style, but I quickly gave that up. I'm getting, getting tenure help. <laughs> give, that, give that up. Um, and I decided to do this project in a more reflexive autoethnographic fashion. However, the term that actually I'm using to refer to this work is, a, is actually intimate ethnography. And that's a term borrowed from um, Elise Waterston and Barbara Rilko Bauer, who use it to describe doing ethnography in the context of the intimate relationships of uh, family life. So as somebody um, from a working class background, when I was a teenager and I first started reading academic books, and this was largely material coming from University of Chicago, sociological texts about uh, Southeast Chicago, I was really alienated from that literature. Um, and it felt to me as a teenager, um, even though now I really appreciate a lot of that work, but the kind of academic language in that work just felt very alienated. It felt like the work was being written about us rather than for us. Um, and I remember at the time um, finding that distressing. And so when I started to work on this project, one of the central questions for me became in representational issues, how to, how to not do that, how to um, try to do this work in a way that didn't create those kinds of um, barriers. So one of the things I did in the book, I mean, this is pretty basic, but rather than putting a lot of academic language into the text itself, all the academic references went into the endnotes, for example. Um, but the larger thing that I tried to do in general for both, we, we tried to do for both the book and the film, um, was to use family stories uh, as a route into thinking about these kinds of questions about deindustrialization. De so the hope was to try to work in a mode that was more of an invitation to non-academics, um, in, in particular people in Southeast Chicago. So stories, particularly family stories, how to pull people um, into the conversation. And so both the Exit Zero book and film weave together stories of various members of my own family. Um, so I use my own family are central in this. Um, and each of the family members basically kind of represents a certain key issue or key theme or key historical moment in the, the transformation of Southeast Chicago. Um, and there's many parallels with those kinds of historical moments with other um, regions that have been deindustrialized as well, even though there's obviously historical differences as well. And so just to give you some sense of the feel of the project, let me show you the first 10 minutes of the film, and then I will continue. Early one morning when I was 14, my mother came into my bedroom and shook me awake. Don't worry, she said. It'll be okay. They called the ore boat back, but it'll be all right. I had no idea what she was talking about or why we should be worrying about a boat with oars being called somewhere. 
Later, I found out she was talking about a giant freighter on Lake Michigan that carried iron ore to the steel mill in southeast Chicago, where my father worked as a shear operator. The Coast Guard had been sent out to stop the ship from delivering its cargo because the banks were about to foreclose on the mill. It was March 28, 1980. I remember the date because it divides our lives into the time before the mill shut down and after the mill shut down. My dad's mill was only the first of many to close. When I was a kid, thousands of people worked in the mills. Now not a single mill is left in Chicago and all those jobs are gone. My dad had worked in the mills his whole adult life, but after 1980, he never held a steady job again. Southeast Chicago is located about as far away from downtown as you can get in the city. A lot of people don't even know the area exists. They drive over it on the Chicago Skyway. Even the exit ramp here is numbered zero. It's a familiar story in America. We have a word for it, the industrialization. And we talk about it as if it's a force we can't do anything about. Like a hurricane that destroys everything in its path. It seems like all we can do is accept it and try to move on. There ain't much sense going any further. Ain't nothing here. We're we'll running out of time. Yeah, I know we gotta go So where was five mil? Five mil was way back there. Okay. This place was big, though, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. It let it grow. It's been so long, I don't even remember half of it. My parents celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary in 1987. That year, one of my mom's best friends, Leslie Paterka, set out to make a video for them documenting the neighborhood and their lives. Happy anniversary, Dad. It's hard for me to watch it now, and not just because of my haircut, <laughs> but because it's a reminder of the hard times my family was still going through, seven years after my father lost his job. Here's some wonderful graffiti. It says historic southeast side. What's amazing, though, is the careful way Leslie tries to film every street corner, every landmark on the southeast side. The Chicago Skyway. These were the streets my mom and dad had spent their entire lives on. And it seemed like she wanted to leave nothing out. Like she wanted to capture it before it all disappeared. The late, great Wisconsin Steel. It's nice that we're getting it on film. Because they're tearing it down and someday it will be only a memory. 
goodbye to Wisconsin Steel. I left home for school when I was 16. And since then, I've mostly spent my life in places where Wisconsin Steel and all the mills aren't even a memory. But no matter how far I've gone, I've still felt tied to the neighborhood by what happened. While I was still in school, I was diagnosed with cancer possibly caused by the industrial pollutants I had grown up around. It seemed like even my body was tied to the southeast side. How do you know this is working? Swamping. Can you talk loudly towards the box? Yes, you can. While I was home recovering, I started making cassette tapes of my sisters and other family, talking about everything that had happened. Okay, can we start this We're taping this. <laughs> First question. Like, how old were you when Wisconsin Steel went down and was high I'm not sure why I did it. I was studying anthropology, and maybe I was trying to document the culture I'd grown up with. But the tapes just ended up sitting in a bag in my desk drawer. Today my family is still on the southeast side, and that keeps me coming back. It keeps me trying to understand. So more than 20 years after the ore boat was called back, my husband and I decided to shoot some interviews about deindustrialization in southeast Chicago. Hey Dad, we have a question for you. Yeah. We were wondering if, before we go to lunch, can we just ask you a couple questions about the neighborhood? About the neighborhood? Yeah. <clears throat> no, you don't want to put me in the neighborhood. <laughs> no. 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 Or what about, like, the mills going down? Put a little mic on you? Oh, you don't want to do that. So who do you think we should ask about to talk a little about Wisconsin going down? Because there's not too many left. Well, not too many guys around we all made a mistake hanging around At first we thought my dad didn't want to participate, but it turns out he does want to talk. He just doesn't want to formalize things by wearing a microphone. How many checks bounced? There's 12 or 13 of them that went back. Right, so the checks just bounced? Just bounced. And then you lost part this is, this is checks you, you cashed a month before, two months before. In fact, sometimes you can't stop him from talking. And we just keep filming. The young people, they got no chance for a job. Years ago, years ago, you, right out of high school, you go to Steel Mills, you go to General Mills, you go to Edison, wherever you wanted to go. First thing you heard, first thing you heard was that they, they sent the Coast Guard up to get the hormones. Sometimes it's hard to follow everything. There are so many details and a lot of conspiracy theories. That's that bank in New York that communist son of a bitch they give a lot of money to these countries and they meet some guys over there to fight them countries. That's chasing what happens. But it's easy to see how that could happen. It's so hard to explain how something like a steel mill could just disappear. 
Now Wisconsin Steel is a toxic bacon lot. Instead of mills, gambling casinos line the shore of Lake Michigan. And landfills, instead of smokestacks, rise above the horizon. We use words like deindustrialization, and we try to explain it all with charts and graphs. But I want to understand people's stories. People's stories? Yeah, people's stories, just stories. You know, kind of like the American dream, like people moving up, people moving down, what it's like for neighborhoods, you know? What, what happened and this and that? Right. But I want to know what you think, Dad, like about the, the future of the country. What? The future of the country. Where is it going? Oh, I don't know. Generations of my family worked in the mills. My great-grandfather, my grandfather, and my dad. The mills were at the center of all of our lives. There are so many stories embedded in this landscape. Looking west, the 95th Street Bridge. Like Leslie in her anniversary video, I decided I want to get them all down, capture them all before everything disappears. Oh, look at another one. Blue again. So how can we not root for any of them, Dad? I don't know. I picked the worst team the night by the <laughs> Yeah, anybody can root for a winner, right? They root for the Yankees every day. Every year. My dad doesn't want to root for anyone. He's afraid he'll only be disappointed. Yeah, Come on, man. He doesn't want to root for anyone. Lucky ass. But sometimes he can't help himself. So that's the um, beginning of the film, and then it go on, goes on to interweave the stories of various family members, again, illustrating um, different things. So the story, we, we follow my dad's storyline, and his essentially about the impact of deindustrialization. Um, and it's, it's quite extreme. The mill where my father worked, was about, it was one of the smaller mills. It had about 3,400 workers. Within the eight years after that mill closed, 800 workers had died within eight years. And that was from alcoholism, suicide, heart attacks, various kinds of stress-related um, illnesses. And so his storyline tracks the story of what happened to those um, who had worked in the mills. Another storyline follows my mother. Um, so my mother's family was in the area just as long as my father's, both for three, four generations. Um, and women generally did not work in the mills historically, or they did during World War II and then later after the um, 1970s. 
Um, but they did other th things to earn cash as well as working in the home. So they would take in boarders, um, other steel workers. They would take in laundry. Later on, they um, took on service jobs. And then after the steel mills closed, they largely became responsible for keeping everybody together economically, but what kinds of jobs were available? Um, things like temp jobs. So my mom ended up working at um, an oil refinery as a temp at the same desk for 30 years. right? So again, the kind of transformation in the nature of jobs that people have available to them. Uh, another storyline follows my, um, my mother's grandfather, um, who, oops. Oh, sorry, it went back to the, there we go. Um, who immigrated to the United States from Sweden in 1910 to work into the steel mills. And this was a memoir we actually found that he had written um, after he died. He had stuffed it in this paper bag and, and hid it in the attic, and so it was found after his death. And it, it ends up being this quite bitter story about sort of immigration and coming to the United States um, and about the nature of work. Um, so there's that storyline um, with my mother's great-grandfather. There's another storyline following my father's father, um, who was from a, a poor white, basically Appalachian family that had been part of a mining community in southern Illinois that moved up to work in the steel mills in the 1920s. He ended up being part of a landmark labor event called the Memorial Day Massacre, which happened in southeast Chicago. That was in 1937. Um, striking steel workers were shot up by the Chicago police. Ten workers were killed and 100 were wounded. Um, and there's actually newsreel footage of the whole Memorial Day massacre. We have oral histories with him. He died a number of years ago. Um, so there's a storyline following that, the history of labor in the area. And then there's a line that follows my own story. Um, after the mills closed, I ended up getting a scholarship to an East Coast boarding school. Um, and it raises questions about sort of the contradictory feeling sometimes that those that are now referred to as first-generation students can have. Um, and it also raises environmental questions as well. This area was heavily polluted industrially. Um, I ended up with a history of cancer, as you know, from the beginning. Many other people in the area have as well. And so we use that storyline to follow some of the environmental questions about the area. So basically, all the sections of the film take all these different forms of media from different places and weave it together to tell these stories. So we use home movies from all the way back from the 1940s up to the contemporary moment. We have this memoir. We have oral histories that were done at various moments, various taped interviews. We use material from that. We use photographs. Um, and we interweave all of these materials together. And the idea is not, is not that any of it is meant to be sort of a transparent window onto anything. It's all meant to serve as points of reflection, you know, to understand sort of who is creating this media when, for what purposes, and using it to reflect on the past and how we understand it. So it's some of the key questions that we try to explore in both the book and the film through this kind of multi-generational storytelling. You, Number one, how is class experienced at the day-to-day -day level? So not thinking about class as just a structural issue, but as an experiential issue. Thinking about the co-constitution of class, race, and gender in these kinds of old industrial neighborhoods. Um, which have been key questions. We can get into, all the, get into all the questions about race in the Q&A if you're interested uh, in this area. Um, considering issues, again, about pollution and toxic waste. So how do we think about social class is also embodied in our very cells? So given the un uneven nature of toxic exposures, how do we think about um, the embodiment of toxicity um, in class terms? How do we think about contradictory feelings towards upward mobility, potentially? And also, how has upward mobility been redefined? So if for old industrial communities like this, post-World War II, this, there was an idea of a collective upward mobility where people as a community experienced increasing wages, 
and felt themselves becoming middle class. Since then, upward mobility has become much more about sort of individuals getting them educated, getting them out of their home neighborhoods, and a very different kind of understanding then of what upward mobility um, is about and how people relate back then to their home communities. Um, and finally, the, the main question is thinking about um, the uneconomic, um, sorry, thinking about expanding inequality in the United States and also the uncertain economic future of not only South, Southeast Chicago but many post, other post-industrial um, settings. So how has deindustrialization contributed to expanding class inequalities in the United States? How has it knocked out a rung of the social ladder, if you want to think of it that way, that allowed a, a, a lot of people who didn't have a lot of formal education to never, nevertheless become middle class? And to give you an extent of the, the kind of inequality that we've been seeing, we've heard lots of discussions about this on a national term. Here's a very particular one for Chicago. So if you look at this, this was done by a graduate student at the University of Chicago. So you see 1970, those gray areas are basically middle class areas. Uh, and the green areas are wealthier areas, the orange areas are, are poor areas. You see the transformation by 2012, right? Both the expansion of the green and the orange, more orange. Um, and you also see the old steel mill neighborhoods going from being largely gray middle class areas to being largely poor areas, right? So just kind of a graphic illustration of the uh, kind of inequality, um, expansion of inequality that we've been seeing um, elsewhere as well. So why put storytelling at the center of this project rather than something else, right? And countless scholars have cautioned us against kind of placing too many assumptions on narrative, that kind of the desire to see stories, storytelling as a kind of unmediated access on the world, the tendency to romanticize um, oral stories um, and other kinds of narratives. But, but I think this kind of storytelling does particular kind of work in this project, and I want to suggest a couple of the reasons why we, find, we found it useful. Um, number one, this is multi-generational storytelling. And what's nice about it is that for this kind of region, you see you're tracking four generations' experience. And much of the academic literature on deindustrialization, you get different pieces of either the industrial period, the post-industrial period, but, but you don't see the whole lot of span and how it's linked for families and how their experiences get transformed over time. Um, secondly, I think stories are revealing, because at least in my experience, um, a lot of people's analysis of the world was bound up in storytelling. Um, so, so for me, when I would come home from college and I would talk to my dad and I would um, kind of you know, spout theories I had heard in college classes, my dad would always counter those with a story. right? And his analysis was always built into the story. And I think that was a very common um, phenomenon. And so thinking about storytelling is also forms of analysis um, as well. And so we wanted to um, do that. Thirdly, the idea is to flip how deindustrialization is often talked about in the academic world. So rather than sort of starting with the, the big picture structural level um, and then having people be just sort of illustrations of the larger issue, we've tried to flip it around and do the opposite. So beginning with people's everyday experiences and using that as pathways outward un to, understanding larger, um, to understanding larger issues. And this builds on a lot of anthropological theorizing by Lila Bulgat, ethnographies of the particular, as well as some other folks. Um, but the point being, um, the point is not to generalize from these particular stories. We're not trying to say that sort of my family's experience is representative of the area or of other deindustrialized regions, whether in Detroit or Pittsburgh or else. The goal is instead to use these stories as a way to dig deep, to try to get the analysis to go deep and to, to have a kind of emotional resonance, hopefully, that suggests something larger that other people might resonate with other people as well. Um, but this question of sort of how one 
links up to, you know, between the particulars and this larger kind of analysis is obviously a very complicated thing. And one of the ways we've tried to do this in the film, excuse me for a moment, I'm just going to toggle back to the film. Um, I'm going to show you one bit from the film where we tried to take, it comes after a section where you've just talked about, um, we've just talked about what's happened with the mill where my father worked, why it went down, how, the reasons why it went under was not at all sort of the national narrative about what happened in these kinds of situations. Um, but then we want to link this up um, to larger issues elsewhere. So we tried to do stuff like this. Oops. Let's see. My dad wasn't alone. 3,400 other workers at Wisconsin Steel lost their jobs. And it wasn't just Wisconsin Steel. The region lost more than 100,000 workers in dozens of plant closings. And it wasn't just in Southeast Chicago. It was happening all over the country. In the end, more than 400,000 steel workers lost their jobs. And it wasn't just the steel industry. More than 30 years after Wisconsin Steel closed, the U.S. has lost 7 million manufacturing jobs. Okay. Every one of those plant closings left a paper trail. And most of the stories are just as complicated is the story of Wisconsin State. Okay, I'm just going to leave it there. So, so the point, again, being that we use these stories of the particular to try to go in deep, but without sacrificing a, a focus on the larger, um, sorry, the larger structural issues as well. Um, and the fourth thing, so I was listing all the reasons why storytelling felt compelling um, to us as a way to do this. Um, so again, this kind of central issue about who do we want to be in conversation with. And so then using stories as a way to invite people in. Um, so if one of the, the, the key questions for anthropology over the last how many decades has been questions of representation, I think increasingly people are concerned with this question of also who is our audience? Who is it that we're communicating with? And stories then to us represented a kind of more common ground for bringing people together for conversation around these issues. So it's something academics can do, people from Southeast Chicago, it becomes a kind of common meeting ground for conversation. Um, and probably the thing that we've been happiest about is that with both the book and the film so far, we've gotten a lot of engagement with people in Southeast Chicago um, um, around this project. Um, and I'll talk about that a bit later, but um, that's one of the things that, that's um, pleased us most. Um, and just one final point on stories in this project. So, the, the book and the film, primarily now the book, um, spend a lot of time talking also about not only what gets said through stories, but also what doesn't get said. What are the stories that are difficult to tell? What are the silences? What are the erasures? And particularly around issues of social class. What do people don't feel, what do people not feel comfortable saying? And so that memoir with my um, uh, great-grandfather, so the fact that he kind of wrote this kind of screed about labor relations basically in the U.S. and then he hid it 
after he died in the attic. So both this kind of, I want to tell my story, but like, I can't tell my story. Who am I going to tell my story? So this kind of ambivalence um, about class and telling class stories in, in a country where, you know, talking about class has often been an uncomfortable thing. And that's part of what we wanted to draw attention to as well. And so let me just quickly talk about the third component in this project, um, which is the interactive website. Okay, um, and so I know that all of you are familiar with this new genre of interactive documentary work um, that CMS through the Open Doc Lab has been um, a, played a pioneering role um, in. So with inspiration from the Open Doc Lab, Chris and I became interested in creating an interactive doctorate website as a third piece of the project, and again in collaboration with the Southeast Chicago Historical Museum that you see here. Um, so this museum is a really interesting place. It was created in the 1980s as the steel mills were closing. Um, so basically, it's one tiny, insanely cramped room in a park field house. They pay no rent. They have no phone. <laughs> they have no climate control. It's all volunteers. It's been all volunteers for 30 years. Um, it's just this completely community-based institution. I um, mean, basically, what happened was in the 80s, as the steel mills were closing, I think so many people felt that their histories were being lost, were being erased, that sort of nobody cared, that people just started donating stuff. And the people at the museum kind of felt this kind of moral obligation that they had to take the stuff. <laughs> and so it is unbelievable how much is crammed into, the, into this place. Um, so we're in the process now. The first stage of working on this is actually just trying to get a handle on everything that is in here. Um, we've gotten some grants to do that. It's, um, we, keep, you know, we keep opening up another file cabinet and finding a couple more reels of film. So even just counting what's there. At our last count, there's about 10,000 images. There's about 40 reels of film. There's 150 oral histories. Like on VHS tapes, they were just like, they've never been transferred. They're falling apart. I mean, there's just, there's so much stuff in here. There's also a storage room, which I've never even been in. Like, God knows what's, what's, what's in that spot. Um, so, so there's this amazing kind of community-based museum. And so the idea, um, so, there's, so the idea for the website is a twofold one. One is to have it be a working archive where people can access some of this material. Because it's all volunteers open one afternoon a week, that's all they can do. Um, so to just for people to be able to have access to this stuff. And the other piece of it is to have it be a storytelling site. So a storytelling site where artifacts in the museum become prompts for um, um, storytelling. Some of that storytelling is going to be curated by ourselves. Other aspects of it is going to be solicited from the um, stories of others. Um, let me give you a look at this. Um, so basically what the website is meant to do is to combine an interest with working class history and historical documentation with an anthropological interest in how and why people tell the stories they kind of do. Sorry, tell the stories they do. And what do people choose to save from the past and why? So for all these objects in the museum, why did people say these things? Why were they meaningful to them? So bringing together the anthropological and the historical aspects of this. So let me just show you quickly how the, the website, this is very early mock-ups, which was done by Jeff Swick, who some of you might know. He's an ODL fellow who's done work on Hollow, Inheritance, and other projects. And um, so the idea would be, that's a map of Chicago behind there. That pink line is the Chicago Skyway. So if you remember from the beginning of the film when Leslie says, the Chicago Skyway, it's here whether we like it or not. That's meant to be the Chicago Skyway. Um, so the idea is, um, when you enter this, 
you it will basically be an animation going down the Chicago Skyway. And that Skyway was built in the 1950s as part of urban renewal. And the idea was to let suburban motorists bypass these old mill neighborhoods and get right to downtown Chicago. So the idea is you're kind of on an animation of the Skyway high above the old steel mill communities, and then you're invited to go down off the Skyway and explore what's down there below. And you can do that exploration in two ways. You can do it by exploring the archive, or you could do it by exploring um, uh, the story end of the site. Um, so here's just a couple images. That's an image from the Skyway. So you would kind of, so, so this is just, again, preliminary kind of thoughts of what the archival end might look like. So all these little squares with things that are there in the museum. So you could do various kinds of um, um, searches of the material that's in the museum. An example of some of the stuff, and you saw a bit of this. Um, you, you saw some of this already in the beginning to the film. So what's interesting about this stuff, these are home movies that former steel workers donated to the museum. So it was basically people who were kind of so traumatized by the last day of work at the mills that they, everybody brought their video cameras. And it's a very common thing in deindustrialized areas, according to other ethnographers. And so people, these are from a range of different mills, just people taking these home movies, and often very poignant, like these kind of like really sad accounts of people going through to all the different parts of the mills. Um, so there's this kind of its own little genre of demolition videos that the museum has. Um, anyway, I'll, sh I'll show you the next one. So there's about 40 reels of film, as I mentioned. We don't even know what's on some of this stuff because it's too delicate. We need, we're get, applying for money now to transfer it over. But just to give you a sense of what might be on some of this stuff, this is actually one that was um, an old 16-millimeter... Um, real that was my great granduncle's the, the the guy who did the memoir. This is his younger brother, um, and it was stuff that was just found in my grandmother's basement that we transferred it over, not knowing what was on it. And here, and this is from um, the 1940s. So this is on the industrial Calumet River with the steel mills in the background. Um, and so the other way you could enter the site would be through the storytelling side. So the idea there, as I mentioned, would be to take artifacts from the museum um, and tell stories about those artifacts, either stories that were given at the time that they were donated, or the museum also has a Facebook page with like 2,000 people on it, um, and they're constantly telling stories. So the idea is to hook up with them and sort of collect stories that way. The other thing that we're um, interested in, Actually, I'll show you a couple images that Jeff did, just preliminarily thinking about focusing on certain objects like a Southworks helmet, or this is actually one for that home movie that you saw, um, where you could then go trace what we know about that artifact and the, and the histories that are associated with it. Um, the other thing that we might end up doing, and, I, and I, this is where I'm sort of more inclined um, to head at this stage, is picking... The plan is to pick um, six or seven events and curate materials that are already in the museum around those events. And one would be the Memorial Day Massacre that I already mentioned, that one where the um, striking, ten striking workers were, were killed. The museum has, as we find more and more stuff in the museum, so in addition to the newsreel footage, there's oral histories, there's scrapbooks, 
There's like 25 years of commemorations by different union groups. There was a steel worker who wrote a play about it. There's buttons. <laughs> There's tons of stuff. So we're thinking about taking things like that where we've, we've now discovered there's all this stuff in the museum and creating kind of curated um, um, sites around that. Another one would be environmental issues. Again, this is one of the major issues ongoing for people in the area and I think it's also a way to bring younger people into the conversation since this is one of the major concerns for younger people. So to have the site not only be about the history but how are we looking forward to the future from this community and it's all about the environmental issues. The brownfields are still there 30 some years on. And what we ideally would like to do then is to link this site to um, sites with other deindustrialized regions as well so you could kind of create a linkage but um, across the industrialized communities through these kinds of um, through these kinds of sites. There's public history sites and other deindustrialized communities. And so let me just quickly before I end, let me just tell you a bit then about the response that we've had so far um, to this project. Um, sorry, I'm just going to skip ahead a bit. Um, um, so again, one of the things that we've been really interested in this, in having this be a transmedia project, was is both sort of how my different pieces of the project convey different kinds of things. And one of the things that's great about this website project is that if the book and the film are autoethnographic, there's limitations with there's both positive things and limitations as well with doing an autoethnographic approach. You can you can kind of go deep emotionally. Um, but there's also, you know, it's, you're picking one family's story. What about all these other stories that are out there? And so the idea with the website then is, is to have it be about collecting all the other stories of these other groups and other individuals in the area and highlighting those different stories. So again, how might the different pieces of this project contribute different things to the overall, um, uh, to the other overall project? The other thing we're interested in, how is this potentially helping us with the nature of engagement with Southeast Chicago that we want to um, that we want to encourage. And one of the things that we've noticed in response to the book and the film, um, there's been a strong response and I should and I should say to start out with that this kind of project actually um, started getting a response in Southeast Chicago before actually academics even knew about it. And this was very different for me than my previous work. Like only academics read it. It was really boring. <laughs> um, well, well, anyway, but um, but this this project because the link we had created an informational uh, link partly with um, the help of um, ODL we had created um, an informational website. Um, the link got sent around by community groups within Southeast Chicago, right? So it's not the fact that it was just sort of online, but it was the fact that it was sort of the links back and forth between sort of bricks and mortar institutions and social networks there. Um, they circulated the link about the project. They told people about the book. Um, there's a trailer for the film on, on the website, there's information about the historical project, and so almost immediately we started getting responses from Southeast Chicago. And so w what's the nature of those responses? Um, the, the primary response has been people witnessing. So when we've done, we've done now three um, showings of the film at various stages. Um, by far the most common thing is after people seeing it, people get up and start witnessing their stories. Right, and kind of very emotional a lot of times. And I think for a lot of people, because this is seen as like sort of passed over history that f affected people very deeply, but they also feel like there's not a broader conversation about it. People want to share their emotional responses, people writing letters, sending. Um, so what we did at the last screening we had in June was we hired a film crew to be there. So we were ready when people got up and <laughs> started doing this. 
Um, and we let people know ahead of time to go talk to the film crew afterwards. And so all that material is being donated to the museum um, and is then going to go on the um, and then is going to go onto the website. The other thing that people have been doing is sending stuff. This desire for documentation, right? So again, feeling like our history has kind of been lost. We want to document this, um, document things. So people sending photographs, people sending, and this is from a woman um, named Pavity Verber. This was her dad who had worked at Wisconsin Steel. She just sent it with a note saying, your dad reminded me of my dad. Here's a picture of my dad. And what's cool about this is that there's actually very few informal photographs from the, from the mills that actually e exist historically. And so it's been really cool to get this kind of material. And again, this just kind of desired document. So she sends her dad's ID card. You know, it's like, to mark that, like, right, he was here. Like, we were, we were here. <laughs> in this kind of disappearing landscape. Um, so this has been the most common, um, this has been the most common responses that, um, that we've gotten so far um, to the project. And so basically there's just been all this kind of response back and forth, sort of people reading the book, watching the film, or, or kind of learning about the website, and kind of all this conversation being generated back and forth and also within in the community in a way that's been really, really great. And we, we had been hoping for this, but but it, it's been pleasant to see that it's actually, we, we weren't sure whether it was going to happen at all, but it's been nice to see that people have really responded to this. And so it's this kind of ongoing dialogue and people coming up with more and more projects, and so it's kind of never-ending project that I'll, you know, be kind of working on until my grave, I'm sure. So just to conclude then, so if anthropologists have historically focused on questions of representation because it's been central to our discipline, as our discipline has sought to rework itself, um, for anthropologists interested in media, and this is particularly the sort of NYU school of media anthropology, um, has focused very strongly also on questions of process and on production. Who makes media? For what ends? In conversation with who? With what consequences? What about small media? Not this kind of just big stuff, but the kind of small homemade stuff. What about the implications um, for both researcher as self as well as others? Um, folks like Elizabeth Edwards also really focusing on, 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 an, on the materiality of the media itself. So when we're looking at historical photographs, not just the content, but who held them, how did they circulate, what albums were they put into. So the materiality of this, this work and how it has um, um, uh, moved around. So this project builds upon these kinds of anthropological engage engagements with media, as well as other engagements. My husband, Chris Babel, who's a filmmaker, has his own set of engagements as well. Um, but ultimately, what all of this is concerned with is a larger issue, which is the changing class landscape of the United States and growing structural inequality. So ultimately, the media concerns for us are subordinate to this. How can we more intimately approach thinking about social class with our students and with others? How do we understand the nature of the changes we've seen? How do we combine, combine attention to, experiential, to the experiential, to the particular? Um, as well as with larger structural concerns as we sort through these issues, and how might transmedia or multi-platform work allow us to vary the texture of the research we do and shift the nature of engagement with audiences in ways that don't just get us to communicate differently, but also get us to think differently at the same time. So that's the project, and apologies for going on for quite so long. So thank you. Sure. Maybe, I don't know, I'm throwing some stuff out there, but um, I mean, it's resonated with me a lot. My father's family is sort of um, not steel workers, but similar kind of like blue collar. Mm -hmm. And one thing that really strikes me about that side of my family is um, 
my grandmother has done so much research of her own into family history, into local communities and the history of those communities, mm -hmm. like books and books and scrapbooks mm -hmm. and books and books. Um, mm -hmm. She's maybe the most rigorous researcher I know, mm -hmm. and I know a lot of my friends yep. are kind of into the same project. So I'm interested in how maybe um, how to engage with those sort of like local family personal level. Yeah researchers, how to engage with, I guess, the methodologies that they're using, yeah. how the sort of transmedia aspect plays into that, and how do you, like, how do you engage them both as academics and on a yeah. personal level without, you know, my grandmother has a grade 8 education, so yeah. on the one level she's incredibly intelligent, but on the other level there's, um, you know, I, when I communicate with her with this kind of stuff, I can't use <laughs> yeah. certain, you know, vocabulary mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. So I just wanted if you could talk a bit about that kind of I guess, interaction between those different modes of research. Yeah, and one of the things that was striking for me, like when I first started working on this project is because I felt a personal need to kind of think through what had happened in the area where I, I was raised. And so it started out as this more kind of personal lonely journey. And then as I did work on it and spending more time again back in Southeast Chicago talking, I was realized I'm just doing the same thing they're all doing at this museum, <laughs> right? I mean, it's the same urge. It's the same urge to make sense of like, you know, the sense of rupture and the sense of sort of what had been lost and needing to find some kind of, um, make sense of it analytically in some sense of continuity. So, you know, there's some point along the line where it's like, oh, we're all engaged in the same project in some sense of how to make sense of this stuff. And one of the things we've been trying to do in grant writing with this museum um, is really think about as well, you know, so a lot of the, 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 the granting that goes on for archival projects um, is to big institutions that have a lot of money. And so we've gotten NEH money and we're applying for more, but one of the things that we know is part of the discussion with them is this is like a little tiny all-volunteer institution. We don't usually work with groups like this. This is cool, but you know. So trying to think about even institutionally, how do you bridge those kinds of gaps where this kind of material, which is an incredible record, can can actually circulate more broadly or generate conversation um, more broadly. So so for us, the way we've been trying to do it is through engagement with the museum and trying to hook them up with others more broadly and get others more broadly to be thinking about what their concerns are rather than just sort of, we don't want them sort of just appropriating the stuff to get appropriated, but to have it really continue to be their story. Because the thing that's different about this than say other um, public history projects in other deindustrialized regions is this is, all of this is coming from within the community itself. It's not sort of outside researchers collecting all this stuff. This is everybody, everything the community has done themselves. Um, so how to keep it that kind of that kind of dynamic, but also have it there be larger access to it at the same time. Um, so that's the way we're trying to do do it. But I don't know if others have other ideas on this. But and just a quick follow: Are those kinds of community archives networked at all? I mean, I imagine I know in Pittsburgh there's a little yeah. and, and because that might be a way to leverage their. Well, exactly. That's what we would like to do. And through some of the, there's been. Um, several deindustrialization conferences, so sort of hooking up with people who have been part of kind of public history projects in different places and talking about this kind of, you know, can we kind of all link up together at some point? And so that's part of the, the long-term discussion of what we would like to do. Um, I think my sense is right now is that, you know, sort of there's things happening in pieces, different places, and people are in conversation, but it would be good to, um, to link it up. 
question. One of, one of the elements that I hadn't seen in the earlier versions that I thought was so powerful was the map that you showed us. Mm. Um, and I wanted to ask, you know, in terms of, I mean, there's, there's one, one level at which the, um, your, the, the community itself, um, as you're saying, is motivated by, in a way, you know, this impulse to say, you know, we were here, these are our stories, this is our history. Um, what you're trying to do is also go from that, in the same way that we saw in that map, go from that, from that neighborhood all the way outward to the U.S., and to be part of a national conversation mm -hmm. about deindustrialization, and I wondered if you'd elaborate on what your hopes are for what is the intervention that you hope this project as a whole might yeah. make in a larger national conversation? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that is the hope to try to take the conversation up to a higher level, and we'll have to see what happens. I mean, the place where it has been circulating a lot has been college classrooms, so. Um, because the book, because the book was written in a less academic fashion, it's been it pulled up in a lot of introductory classes, and so it's a chance to show the film as well. And so it's definitely through kind of the college terrain, it, it, it's been able to sort of generate at least some conversation that way. But in terms of you know the next stage up, I don't know. We have to um, we have to see <laughs> where things end up going. But that has been our hope anyway. Um, to try to have the conversation go from this particular art to the big, and I have to say that that visualization took forever, because the statistics on the loss of those kinds of jobs that they're kept in um, it's very different kinds of data and it does not correspond across the country, and so actually the the colors that you saw only go up to 2000, but the numbers go up to 2003, and we had to stop it at the colors at 2000 because they stopped collecting that kind of data. Um, so it should be even more extreme. It should be, be far more extreme. But we had a couple graduate students working for, for like a year trying to find, you know, go through all the different kinds of data we can use. How do we kind of try to make this equivalent? And how do we make this, as researchers, how do we make this as, as you know, strong and scholarly terms as we can and still kind of show what's going on? So, so thinking about these questions of visualization, how do we kind of, again, create these kind of links between sort of more particular aspects of our research and these kind of larger kinds of questions. Um, yeah, that's what well, I guess part, part of that question is, is you know, if, um, if the film, as I hope it will, has either a national broadcast or a national release, is written about and talked about, what, what do you feel is the, the intervention that you want to make I in see. the conversation. I see. Um, and we try in the film to raise these larger questions. And there's analysis. Like this is this is research. It's got its analysis. <laughs> you know. Um, so we're trying to raise these analytical questions in a way that's, you know, again, sort of more conducive to open conversation. But we we don't want to beat people over the heads with stuff too. I mean, I think the point of the film for us as well as the book is to serve as, as points of reflection for people. We want people to kind of reflect on this transformation. And again, it's not just about, it's just using the Southeast Chicago story as a prompt for elsewhere. It's like, okay, 
Pittsburgh, Detroit, all these other little towns in New England, thinking about the larger, again, the larger changing class landscape of the United States. What has been going on that has led to this? Where is it heading? What, it, what is the future? And so if anything, that would be the intervention would be just to sort of encouraging reflection rather than to kind of make any single, single point, I think. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you've noticed any patterns in what people working at the steel mills did after the mills closed. Because just thinking about places I've lived before, my family used to live in a small town in Indiana, which during the recession, when the oil industry yeah. crashed, thousands of people lost their jobs. And right. if you were in a position to afford leaving, most people left. Right. But thinking back to a lot of other people, they're still there, but there's nothing for them there. Yeah. So I'm wondering if there was like a similar situation back in Chicago. Yeah. And what part of India? Marion. Very close to Gas City. So jobs afterwards. So partly it was a generational issue with the steel mills. So for the older steel workers, they often could not get jobs again. Um, they were seeing, even for hiring them for, well, first of all, you, you have, if you have like 100,000 unemployed steel workers, like the, the, for years, it was very difficult to get any kind of job whatsoever. And even for service providers, it was like they're the old unionized workforce. They're going to be too combative. We don't, we don't want them. Um, so a lot of the the older generation, they could, they they often did not work again, and that was hugely traumatic. And so I think some of the suicide rates and other kinds of things were very much related to that. For the younger generation. Um, the industrial work that is still there is, is often temp work now. We think of temp work as other kinds of things, but increasingly industrial work is temp work. Um, so even if they're still doing industry, it's it's much more unstable, often non-unionized, all the kind of problems that you have with temp work more generally. Um, informal economy, people then commuting downtown to work service jobs if they can. I mean, it's a real kind of... Um, patchwork. Some people, a few people have been kind of catapulted up by this in the sense that people who might have just gone to work in the steel mills, then it became, well, you have to get some kind of education or certain kinds of jobs like machinist jobs became computerized jobs and kind of pushed people up to being a kind of more middle class position. So for a few people more kind of at the top, it actually kind of pushed them up. But for the vast majority of people, it's just been sort of ongoing displacement for a lot of people. And people living together with grandparents, extended families, pooling resources. Sorry if we got here late. I was listening to Ray Stad and talking about different kind of economic success, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, my father managed a steel mill mm -hmm. in Delaware. Um, I don't think you probably meant it the way I heard it when you said you made reference, alluded to a workforce that was were seen to be too combative. Mm -hmm. um, one might argue that it was the management who were too combative, um, unwilling to bring workers in to yeah. a more cooperative approach, which leads me to a two-part mm -hmm. two question. You're probably familiar with the work of Gar Alperovitz. Uh, Gar Alperovitz? Oh, yeah, huh? Who, had done, who worked with people in um, Youngstown, when the mills were mm -hmm. going to be closed there, largely out of a profit-driven mentality on the part of the owners, um, trying to get a cooperative, you know, 
alternative ownership going that might have saved jobs or might have helped mitigate this catastrophe. And they were blocked. And um, so I guess I'm wondering what you think. I mean, I know you don't want to be too prescriptive, I guess. But what do you think about those kinds of approaches? He's continuing to work on this sort of different approach to yeah. kind of community worker investor ownership models and um, whether they would apply to the steel industry mm -hmm. is of course another question but MIT has a, a manufacturing yep. initiative I mean where might any of this yeah. go so um, kind of worker buy so there was actually in one of the Chicago mills Republic Steel there was a, um, a worker buyout of part of the mill to, to try to keep it going um, no, no, um, it, it didn't. So, so there are people who are trying to do things like that. Um, oh, what was the other thing? I was just um, sorry. Uh, sorry, it'll, it'll no, it'll come back to me. Sorry, there's another piece of the story. But one thing I can say. A crucial tidbit of information, and now I've lost it, but it, it will come back. Um, but in terms of sort of contemporary activism, what a lot of the contemporary activism is about um, at this stage is the environmental issues. Because the way a lot of community groups see it is that the area is still so environmentally damaged, and you still have these massive brownfields that without any kind of cleanup, their kids are forced to go elsewhere to find jobs. There is kind of no future for the area. So it's very interesting. There's wetlands in between all the mills. So the community groups have, have been pushing actually for parks in this area. And what they mean by that is, is parks that include both the natural environment and the community histories, and using that as a way to argue for a cleanup of the region. Because one of the things that happened after deindustrialization, what can you put in, in toxic places like this? Landfills. 90% of the landfills for the city of Chicago are in this area. Um, and the, there was a moratorium that was instituted a number of years back based on activism by people in the community. So one of the arguments people have made is that if we turn this into park, quote unquote, we could argue that incompatible usage if they try to put more um, waste in the area. Um, so people really thinking about how can we do environmental cleanup in a way that makes this, you know, a, a more economically lively um, place for the future. So it's interesting because this is an area where people have been sort of nervous about environmentalists in the past because they were afraid of loss of jobs. But that's really switched in recent years where their kind of hopes for the future are very much bound up with environmental questions. And I know the part that I forgot now, the issue about uh, manufacturing and bringing back manufacturing. And there's some kind of groups of former steel workers that are pushing for you. I mean, you'll see them at various community events and they're out there trying to do it. But one of the things that they acknowledge is um, the jobs that are coming with that aren't, aren't the old jobs in the sense of pay and other kinds of things, and there's a lot fewer of them. And the clean, so they've also been arguing for clean jobs. So they got, um, through the city of Chicago, they got a solar panel farm put on one of the old brownfields, right? And so the irony is one of the community environmental activists took us on a tour there, and, and she's like, yeah, look at this cool thing, and we fought for this, and isn't this great? And, she, and, and she's like, you know, how many people do you think work here overseeing this? One person, right, on a site that used to employ, you know, several hundred people on that site that was a smaller site. So they completely have to deal with that double bind. They want the area cleaned up for themselves and their kids, but it is not coming with any kind of jobs associated with it. The, the clean stuff that's coming in, it, it's all 
automated. The area has become one of the biggest center of um, container trade. There are no, like, like 50 jobs, <laughs> right? And this area used to have like 100,000 people working in the mills. So this is the big question for people, right? And I don't know what to, you know, yeah. I mean, that's the really depressing stuff. Um, so I have two very different questions. The first one related to what you were talking about in your question about like, a larger intervention. Um, obviously, the community that's depicted in your project is one that's being discussed sort of ad nauseum today in context of the current election, right? Mm -hmm. as, as communities who feel they've been left behind in their own country, more or less. And are you at all tempted, based on this sort of moment, to link this socioeconomic narrative to a wider political narrative? And then the second question, um, mm -hmm. I don't know, a very different question is, I was interested in the scene you included in the clip you showed us where you're sort of negotiating with your father as to whether yeah. he's going to speak on camera or not. Yeah. And I was curious as to why you included that scene and if that's yeah. reflected in, um, in the scenes with the other characters who we didn't see in the film, that sort of negotiation. Yeah. yeah, thank you for both questions. Um, the, the, the thing with my, <laughs> with my dad and the mic, probably could, because he wouldn't wear a mic, so you couldn't understand him throughout the film, so we, it's kind of like we, we had to show why we're um, subtitling him the, the whole way. But in addition to that, it was very much about the whole, um, do we talk or do we not talk about class? Mm -hmm. And and there's kind of background story to, the, to that about, you know, cause I really struggle with the question, does my dad want to participate in, in this or not? And I talk about this more in the book. I, I give more a bit more of the backstory to this, but... Um, he he kept saying he didn't want to be interviewed, but then literally when my husband would bring out the camera, he would follow him around <laughs> and talk to the camera. So we, we would talk about it, and Chris would be... I was like, I don't think he's giving us permission, and Chris would be like, he's following me around with the camera. Like, I, you know, I can't, I can't not film him, because <laughs> he keep telling a story. So what we ended up deciding to do about the issue of consent was that very early on we made a DVD... Uh, like an early kind of cut a part of the film and we brought it back and we showed it to him and we didn't film this we should have we should have filmed this but so he was watching himself on on the TV with this and it was really interesting because he's just sitting there nodding nodding agreeing with himself <laughs> the whole time I was like damn straight that's right <laughs> you know and again and so we really took that as the point of consent. He knew exactly what we were doing. He, he, he knew the intent of things. But I think there is also something about the, that kind of class. Like he felt, who am I to speak in this kind of official medium? Who are people to pay attention? I mean, who, who am I that people, other people should pay attention to me? And he couldn't quite get past that. So to us, that was very poignant also. Again, like who, who speaks about class and who doesn't? So, and, and so we wanted to highlight that through, through that scene. The other question about the political um, landscape, um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, the only signs I've seen in Southeast Chicago were actually Bernie Sanders signs, and largely in Spanish, because um, it's largely Mexican-American community now. Um, so for the, the kind of the older generation of Eastern European whites, um, some of those folks are still there. Actually, it was interesting, the only ones that um, I had heard of who were supportive of Trump were small business owners, like sort of the owner of a local bar, for example. And it's interesting that if, when they were doing some of the exit interview at polls, and they were checking sort of people's um, income levels, the average income for Donald Trump supporters was quite high. I mean, it was, it was lower than the other Republicans. It was way, way higher than Bernie Sanders or um, or Hillary Clinton. So 
when the media says working class, one of my questions is what do they mean by working class? Because working class now gets defined for the media no longer by the jobs that people do, it's by whether you have um, a college education or not. Right? So I think a lot of people are being lumped into the category of working class. And I think a lot of the Trump supporters, I would probably see as sort of more kind of lower middle class. who you know Because that kind of um, entrepreneurial combativeness actually doesn't go over so well with a lot, like kind of the old school people like my dad. That doesn't, that doesn't go over so well. That was all about like, you don't put yourself up above others in that way. So I think that's a kind of rhetoric that appeals more to a certain category of people that see themselves as upwardly mobile, but they, they feel themselves as kind of blocked. So I think this is, again, one of the reasons why I think we need to talk about class, because I think a lot of stuff is being lumped together by the media that we need to be taking apart to understand actually kind of what's going on in this election cycle. Because if they ever really talked about using, they haven't had a great history of being comfortable with the phrase working class for decades. And if I'm not I don't follow it closely enough to know, but if it's suddenly now being deployed, it's interesting. Yeah. Because it's not being deployed yeah. in any way that would have been linked to when it might have made a difference in the lives of working class people. Yeah. And can I, can I here's a, um, this is a, a bit of information from somebody who wrote this on a working class studies blog saying that. Um, what percentage of Trump voters, this was earlier on in the election where they said the percentage of Trump voters um, who um, didn't have a college education, so what they defined as working class, I forgot what they said is 40%, but only 30% of white Americans, if I'm remembering the, the, the numbers correctly, actually have a college education. So actually then the, the, the working, however you define working class, would actually be somewhat disproportionately lower in representation, but that was back when Bernie Sanders was also in the race. But again, keep it like how things are being defined there. If only 30% of whites have a college education, then 70% is really working class in how they talk about it, but I don't think, I mean, again, it's all confused. Working families was the term in right. Sanders' campaign. Right. That's the term. Right. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, this is also very interesting, and I'm quite question where we go in a different direction. But since we're here in CMS, I just wanted to go back to your, your the media, mm. how you're working with that. And I find it really exciting that you've got a book, you've got a film, mm. and now you're doing a website. I think that's really cool because obviously the book has a certain amount of authority, the film seems it connects with the book, fabulous teaching material can be viewed without the book, could sell the book, whatever, however it's filmed. But it seems to me that there's something in the website that I haven't heard you talking about yet. And I'm surprised because mm -hmm. it seems to me that given the, the way the museum has come together, which is definitely a community effort that everybody wants to tell their story, if you have thought of a way to use I'm just going to say social media. Mm. But to open the website, so rather than having you telling right. these stories and trying to right. spend the rest of your life figuring out how these things, to really let the community go into the website somehow. I mean, I'm saying right. this in a dreamy fashion, but yeah, yeah. Um, so that they are actually going to be, because I think the website could be fabulous for these yep. people. I mean, this generation now, they all have some kind of. Yep. 
Yeah, and this is something we've really um, spent a lot of time thinking about and we're still thinking about. Um, one of the things with the objects that we would like to do, again, there's this Facebook page through the museum. And so one of our, because one of the issues, actually, the museum volunteers themselves, if it's too open-ended, they don't want to have to do the work of who's going to maintain it long-term and, and curate stuff. So that's actually more about work issues on their end. <laughs> um, so, so kind of how to kind of keep it a little bit more contained work-wise long-term in the future. So that's partly coming from them. But one of the ideas that they're really into also is um, a way to have it both be community participation but also a bit curated where we could do it sort of upfront would be going to um, the Facebook group of 2,000 people. And so objects we want to put on the website. So we've, we've gone through the process of kind of picking out some of the stuff that we think in collaboration with the museum board and others about what stuff we think is really great. And then sharing that stuff on the Facebook page and asking people questions about that. Kind of, okay, if you've got these five photographs of US Steel Southworks, which one would you use and why? And tell us your stories about this. And sort of using that material then as part of the, the kind of curation of what's going to go on. And we'd like to have some more open things as well, but we have to think about how we would set it up in a way that, again, wouldn't create a lot of work for people long term. So that's definitely been part of the, the conversation from the yeah, beginning, but yeah. just how to do it. And again, why at the last screening we had the film crew, because again, it's a way to get people to tell their stories, but do it in a curated way where we... So it's about work. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's kind of why I wanted to phrase the question here, because speaking to all of you and your generation of work, of work, there needs to be a way that we can create these things now, mm -hmm. and, but that they're, that they're sustainable for mm -hmm. Hopefully, for your project, mm -hmm. forever. Right? Yeah. You want to be able to have that be an active, mm. growing thing. It shouldn't just stop when you are no longer active. And one of the, 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 the biggest pieces of it that we just kind of got settled in place was agreeing to, the, the Chicago History Museum agreeing to take over the assets, both physical and digital, of the museum if this project ever goes defunct. Because um, again, it's all volunteer labor. So that's kind of been one of the big pieces also being in, in terms of being able to get grant money for this is because of course the funders want to know. It's like you've got, you know, a lot of people who are getting older, this is all volunteer. How do we know this stuff is going to continue? So now we have that piece in place, which is great. Great. Final round of applause. Well, thank you.